1: A sailor spends weeks, sometimes months, at sea, away from his loved ones. Many dream of the embrace of the woman they love and the promise it holds to guide them home. A lonely sailor's heart can be a vulnerable thing when her song drifts to his ears. Carried by the ocean's breeze, he will not be able to resist. It stirs in his heart. Every lonely emotion, every feeling of love and desire that he has missed, it wrenches like a vice so strong that his mind can only be pulled to answer its call. Welcome to Freaky Folklore, the podcast where we discover the horrifying legends across the world and tell terrifying tales of monsters, both ancient and modern. Today we are discussing the siren, a human-like creature in Greek mythology. With a voice so alluring, it can lead sailors to their deaths. This show is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network. Find more terrifying tales at EerieCast.com and be sure to follow us on Spotify or your favorite podcasting service. You can leave an honest review on iTunes, too. The more we get the more we grow, and hopefully, the more monsters we can explore. If you would like to submit an encounter or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to carmincarrion at gmail.com. That is C-A-R-M-A-N-C-A-R-R-I-O-N at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook for information on future episodes. my name is david smith i'm 26 years old and i want to tell you my story about the sirens mike my best friend and i used to work for a cargo company i won't disclose the name of the company we worked for because they would deny everything all i can say is that we carried general goods and were often required to be gone for 40 to 50 days at a time It was late March, and we were out to sea with the rest of our crew on our way to Shanghai. There were 21 men, including Mike and myself, on the boat. We usually ran a crew of 20 to 30 men, depending on the size of the load we were carrying. Our skipper was a well-seasoned ex-naval officer, but I'm just going to call him Joe for the sake of his family's privacy. If they were ever to hear my story, it may cause them pain. And I'd rather spare them that. The company we worked for did a thorough job of covering up what really happened on that trip. We had been out for over two weeks and only had a few days until we made port in Shanghai. The weather had been rather stormy, but it was nothing we couldn't handle. So we stayed our course, full steam ahead, so to speak. I'd had an uneasy feeling from the time we left port but I wasn't one to call off work, I liked the money. I didn't tell Mike or anyone else how I felt because I thought it could bring bad luck, not to mention they'd laugh at me and tell me I was paranoid. I'd never handled being the butt of jokes graciously. Not to mention seamen were very superstitious and I didn't want my anxiety to spread and make the rest of the crew nervous. Three weeks in and I still hadn't been able to shake the feeling of impending doom. Something just didn't feel right. I had the constant feeling that we were being watched. I kept looking out to sea, but I wasn't sure what I was looking for. On edge the entire time I had become jumpy. It got much worse after one day I thought I saw someone in the water. I'd been enjoying a smoke one evening at dusk. The sun was sinking in the horizon, making the sky turn to a beautiful reddish-orange. I was admiring the reflection of the sky's colors on the ocean waves when I saw something bobbing up and down not far from the ship. At first, I thought it was probably just a dolphin or some other sea creature. But then it turned, and I saw the profile of a woman. When it turned back... I got the eeriest feeling that it was staring at me. I couldn't see the eyes, but I could feel them. Later that evening, I finally told Mike about it, and he had a good laugh. He told me that he thought I'd been too long without a girlfriend, and it was causing me to have mermaid fantasies. I immediately regretted telling him. I had trouble sleeping that night. I kept hearing something banging on the side of the ship. Those big ships make lots of sounds, but this was different. It didn't sound like waves. In fact, the storms from earlier that day had passed, and the water had calmed down significantly. No, it sounded more like a loud, hollow thumping on the side of the ship. I kept trying to tell myself that it was just the wind. But after about the third or fourth time, I decided to get up and go look around. I searched the lower deck to make sure the sound wasn't coming from there and found nothing. I then went to the upper deck and searched. After I found nothing there either, I began looking over each side from one end to the other, but again nothing. By then I was exhausted from lack of sleep, so I was about to go back to bed when I saw something out of the corner of my eye. Could it possibly be the same thing I had seen before? But how could anyone be out there in the water without a boat this far from shore? As soon as I turned my head to get a better look, the figure ducked beneath the water and disappeared. I watched and waited for it to resurface, but when it didn't, I gave up and went back to bed. Maybe I was losing it. That next morning, I ran into Lee on my way to the mess hall. He was the newest addition to our crew. We hadn't talked much, so it was strange that he seemed to be waiting on me. I thought I saw you wandering around last night, he began. I thought maybe you had heard the same thing that I did. I was surprised but excited to have someone to confide in. I may not be going crazy after all. Are you talking about the banging noises? I asked him, and he nodded excitedly. Yeah, I heard it. I looked around, but I couldn't find what was causing it. I then grabbed him by the shoulder and led him into a corner where we couldn't be overheard talking. I also saw something or someone in the water, or at least I think I did. I told him in a hushed voice. His eyes grew large. I knew it. I saw something, too, a few days ago. I thought I saw a girl. She was just floating around out there watching me. You know what it is, don't you? He asked me with so much enthusiasm that I was scared to ask him what he thought it was. Well, no, I don't know what it was. How could anyone be just swimming around out there for days? I knew that we'd both seen the same thing, but I still wanted to maintain some feeling of sanity. Man, it has to be a siren. My grandma used to tell me stories about them. She said my grandpa had seen one before. He was a sailor in the 40s during World War II. He was scratching his head while he talked. I think we should try and catch it. Then we can prove that the myths are real. I thought this guy might be truly crazy. I'd heard of sirens, but they were old made-up stories. Even if they were real, it would be almost impossible to catch one without dying in the process. We decided to keep what we'd seen between the two of us for now, until we could investigate further. I needed to see more than a silhouette of a head before I could even believe that it wasn't just my imagination regardless of our similar stories. Can you meet me up top tonight after everyone goes to bed? He whispered, as if we now conspired some sort of covert mission. Sure, I agreed hesitantly, but make sure no one else knows, okay? He made the motion like a zipper across his lips with two fingers to imply that his lips were sealed, and then turned and walked away. The day seemed longer than usual. I didn't think too much about my meeting with Lee later, but as the evening finally approached, I wondered just what I'd gotten myself into. The moon was full that evening, and it lit up the rocking ocean, making a beautiful but eerie setting. Lee was waiting for me on the bow of the ship. He had a half-burnt cigarette hanging from his mouth. He pulled a pack from his pocket and offered me one. I grabbed one and popped it in my mouth as he began to tell me what he had in mind. He wanted to try to toss one of the cargo nets over the side and drag it in hopes that one of the creatures would become entangled in it. It sounded way too simple. Surely there was more to his plan. But there wasn't. That was it. I had serious doubts about all of it. Sirens in the water and catching one with a net. I'm sure I couldn't hide the dubious look on my face as Lee drug a large cargo net to the side of the ship. I was curious as to how he would secure it and not get pulled over the side if he did catch something, but watching him work, I was impressed with his do-it-yourself fishing net and the line he had created with rope to help cast it and reel it back in. When everything was ready, Lee told me to go ahead and go get some rest and if anything happened, he would come and wake me. Before I left, he handed me a ball of wax. It was soft and pliable. This is to cover your ears if the sirens start to sing. According to what I read, wax is the only way to shut the sound completely out. I shoved it into my coat pocket, and then I did what he told me and went down to my room and tried to get some sleep. A few hours later, I woke to the sound of a loud commotion. I guess I was hyper-alert even in my sleep, because I was the only one that heard it. Everyone else was still sleeping. I got up as fast as I could and headed up onto deck to help Lee, but by the time I got up there, there was nothing to see. Lee was gone, and so was the net and ropes he had attached to it. I looked everywhere, but I couldn't see or hear anything. I then searched the ship starting with Lee's bunk, but there was no trace of him. I decided it was time to wake the rest of the sleeping crew. I woke them, saying only that it was an emergency, causing them to hurry as if the boat was on fire. Mike was among the group at this time, and I could tell he wasn't too pleased to be woken up in the wee hours of the morning. Once they were all there and could see no cause for alarm at first, they were angry, thinking it had been a joke and demanded an explanation. That's when I told them that Lee was missing and may have jumped or fallen overboard. I explained everything that had been going on the past couple of days, and when I was finished, they all looked at each other and then looked back at me. They started laughing. I got angry and started shouting at them. I didn't understand how they could find this funny. We had just lost one of our crewmates. Mike knew by the look on my face and the sound of my voice that I was not joking. The captain was the first to take this situation seriously. He initiated the protocol for a man overboard situation, which involved releasing an MOB marker from the side of the bridge wing, where Lee was last seen. The marker is buoyant and has a self-igniting light and self-activating smoke signal. He posted Mike and I to look out for any sign of Lee in the water and then went and sounded the alarm whistle. He'd no sooner sounded the whistle than the ship lost power. The engines, the lights, everything went dark. It was a terrifying situation, being out in the open sea with the only light being the moon shining down on you. For a moment, the MOB marker floating in the water was the only light besides the moon. But then it suddenly disappeared beneath the water, and the night went completely dark. I could hear yelling and people scurrying to find lanterns and flashlights. But then the sound of a woman's voice slowly began to fill the night air. It started out soft and then rose in pitch. It was hypnotizing. Every man on the ship froze and went silent. I acted as fast as I could and dug the ball of wax out of my pocket. I was struggling with maintaining my focus as the beautiful sound of the siren's call beckoned me towards the edge of the ship. I managed to cover my ears and muffle the sound into complete silence. I could hear only the sound of my heartbeat. I was standing there trying to figure out what to do next when I noticed the crew had begun to line up at the edge of the ship. They were staring out into the ocean blankly. I then watched, helplessly, as one by one, they began to climb the rail and jump over. Paralyzed by fear and shock, I was standing in the same spot when I felt someone shove past me. It was Mike. He was making his way to the edge of the ship. He looked like he was in a trance being led by some unseen force. My reaction was pure instinct as I tackled him and held him to the deck. He fought me hard, kicking and swinging his arms. His fist grazed my chin and sent me backwards a bit. Luckily, that's when I saw the rope. I wrapped it around him and tied him up. I didn't stop until his arms and legs were completely immobile. I'm not sure how I managed Since he was considerably larger than me. I don't know how many of the crew had jumped overboard at that point, but as I saw several more, including the captain, making their way towards the railing, I decided to fight back. I didn't know if it would work, but I ran to the helm and found the flares that were stored there, as they were on most ships. I ran back to the railing and started shooting the flares out into the water. I didn't know where to aim so I sent them in every direction. After the last flare had been fired, I stumbled backwards and fell down. Exhausted, not from physical exertion, but from panic and fear. That's when I noticed that the remaining crew had begun to regain their senses. Nervously, I removed the wax from one of my ears. The singing had stopped. The crew had shrunk to less than a dozen men, including me, the captain, and Mike. We were stuck in the middle of the ocean on a dead ship, but we were still alive. As the sun began to rise, we all gathered together to figure out what to do next. Most people don't realize that cell phones have virtually no signal that far from land, so that was never an option. We finally decided to divide into teams. One team would try to figure out why we lost power. The next would devise a plan to signal for help. And the third would work on a plan of defense. By nightfall the next evening, the first two teams had failed, leaving everyone to depend on the plan of defense. We all felt that another round of attack was imminent. We had found another box of flares and a few hammers from the engine room toolbox, but our only real defense was to keep the sounds of the sirens silenced. Mike and I split my ball of wax, but there was no more to be found. What I had wasn't enough for everyone, so we opted for the earplugs that were used in the engine room. We got everyone prepared and in lookout positions all around the ship, and we waited. For what felt like an eternity when finally we heard a distant sound the same sound lee and i had heard the night before before he had disappeared everyone was silent as they plugged their ears then all of a sudden the calm waters began to stir waves were crashing up against the sides of the ship making it sway violently causing everyone to lose their balance. The singing was getting louder by the second. Even with the earplugs shoved in their ears, I could see that the singing was unbearable. It wasn't long before the captain was taking the plugs out of his ears and slowly started walking towards the edge of the ship. Mike ran for him first and I followed, but it was too late. We didn't make it to him in time. The captain dove headfirst into the ocean and was eaten by the waves. We yelled for him and shined our flashlights down into the dark water, but we couldn't see him anywhere. Mike and I gathered the rest of the crew, some of them by force, and took them below deck, where we locked them in before anyone else could be hypnotized and lured in by the sounds of the sirens.
0: This episode is sponsored by The Dead Files from Travel Channel. If you're listening to anything on the EerieCast network, odds are you love ghost stories. That's why I think you'll love The Dead Files from Travel Channel. Join hosts Amy Allen and Steve Deshavi as they investigate paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the U.S. Each host offers a unique and exciting perspective for every case, Amy is a medium, seeing and speaking to those who are no longer in the world of the living. And Steve is a retired homicide detective who uses public records and witness testimony to piece together the history of the haunted location. Each episode of The Dead Files features a different, real haunting to possibly help the family struggling with its effects. One episode on Falconer New York deals with a family who keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They frequently witness a shadow figure lurking around their home. Amy and Steve receive their call and investigate, with Amy using her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry, while Steve separately researches the history of the home, only to discover several previous residents who lived at the home died, confirming Amy's own findings. After their investigation, Amy and Steve must conclude with whether the house is safe to remain in, or if it's time to get out. I really love the deferring perspectives and skill sets between the two hosts, and I think that's why The Dead Files is a must-listen podcast for any fan of the paranormal and supernatural. Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see, so... No, that's a good thing. Uh... <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reeses, you did it! You stumped this charming devil!
1: The creatures of Greek mythology known as sirens were hybrids of women and birds. Their music, which they used to entice sailors out of their boats and to their deaths, made them both hideous and beautiful. It was crucial to totally cover your ears with wax in order to prevent even a single note of the sirens singing from reaching you, in order to safely pass by them. The Iliad and the Odyssey, two of Homer's major works of ancient Greek literature, contain the first mention of sirens in Greek mythology. However, it's thought that sirens have a much longer history. A flying ghost from Asia known as the Soul Bird was thought to have inspired the idea of a hybrid monster that was half woman and half bird. This notion originated in the East and was brought to ancient Greece, where it was included into Greek myths that forewarned of the perils of sea travel. Following Homer, numerous Greek and Roman authors incorporated sirens into their myths and tales. In Greek art, sirens often had hideous and monstrous features, while in Roman art they frequently had lovely looks. Until the Middle Ages, sirens were still featured in european art frequently as seductive beauties the modern perception of sirens has been affected by this image of the seductive siren the danger of the ocean and the danger of temptation are both represented by sirens in greek mythology like many greek tales the sirens are depicted in diverse ways by different authors there are numerous mythical tales about the origin of the sirens The Sirens are variously referred to as the daughters of Oceanus and Gaia, the Titans, or Aeschylus, the principal river god of ancient Greece and one of the Muses. The Sirens, according to the prominent Roman author Ovid, were Persephone's companions before she was kidnapped by Hades. The Sirens are then given wings by the goddess Demeter, so they can look for Persephone. In some myths, Demeter curses the Sirens and punishes them by giving them wings. The Odyssey, an epic poem by Homer, has one of the most well-known and historic references to the sirens. Odysseus, the protagonist of the Odyssey, must navigate the sirens on his return from the Trojan War. Odysseus's crew use wax plugs to block off the sirens' voice, but Odysseus himself commands that they tie him to the mast because he wants to hear their melody. Odysseus begs to be released after hearing the music but his soldiers keep him restrained so that they can safely pass. In Apollonius Rhodius, later Greek epic poem Argonautica, the Sirens make another appearance. According to this myth, in their quest to find the Golden Fleece, Jason and his valiant friends the Argonauts must pass past the Isle of the Sirens. The poet and musician Orpheus saves the men. It is said by playing his lyre, more exquisitely than the sirens do. A siren was generally presented in Greek art as a bird with a woman's head. They were frequently pictured with a lyre in musical scenes or atop a memorial honoring the deceased. The sirens were frequently depicted on ceramics that showed Odysseus' return trip. The sirens were once portrayed as grotesque monsters. They developed into beauty later in Greek and Roman art. But it wasn't until much later that the Sirens were connected to Lust, as they were in the Middle Ages. Although this has little to do with how they were portrayed in Ancient Greece, the Sirens came to be associated with the mermaids during the Middle Ages. Sirens and mermaids are often confused, and the reason is that in Greek mythology, Sirens never had a half-fish body. Instead, they were human and bird hybrids. Female beings and sirens never resided underwater. Instead, they ran around in flower-filled fields on rocky islands. As we repeatedly observe, by the 4th century AD, when Christianity started to spread throughout the Western world, all paganism, including Greek mythology, was regarded as evil. As a result, customs and tales were either altered to conform to Christian belief, or malevolent beings were transformed into benevolent ones. The Greeks believed that there were three sirens, part virgins, half birds, with wings and claws. One sung, another played the flute, and the third the lyre. They lured sailors to shipwrecks by singing. The Christian church may not have been entirely responsible for what turned sirens into mermaids. When Phoresis, an ancient sea god who is portrayed as a fish tailed merman with crab claw forelegs and red spiked skin, is identified as the father of some of the sirens in ancient Greek mythology. Roman writers tended to associate sirens with the sea. Venus, the Latin name for the Greek goddess of love, pleasure, and procreation, Aphrodite, qualities that the Christian church disapproves of, was birthed from the seas. She was born into the water, and Isidore of Seville said in his etymologies that the sirens dwelt there among the sea's waves exactly like mermaids do. Therefore, sirens are now viewed as mermaids, female representations of perilous temptation. According to some post-Homeric writers, the sirens threw themselves into the sea and drowned after Odysseus passed by, because they knew if someone heard their singing and escaped, they were doomed to die. Gaius Julius Hyginus, a Latin author, claimed that sirens were only destined to live, as long as anybody who heard their melodies were unsuccessful at passing by them. Another legend claims that Hera, the goddess ruler, convinced the Sirens to compete in a singing contest with the Muses. After winning the contest, the Muses removed all of the Sirens' feathers and used them to craft crowns. The Sirens, distraught by their defeat, turned white and plunged into the sea at Eptera, featherless, where they created the islands in the distance. Today, sirens are nearly always depicted as female. An image of the siren as a kind of succuba arose as their womanhood and femininity became more concrete, and with the continuing motive of the fatally alluring magic song. No one slept that night, even after the singing had stopped and the water had calmed. How were we supposed to continue? The only other person that was able to steer the boat if the power was restored, besides the captain, was Lee. And now they were both gone. We were only a few days from port, but stuck with no power. We had managed to manually drop anchor and did the only thing we could do. Wait. When we didn't show up and they couldn't reach us, they'd have to send out a search team. At least we hoped that's what would happen. Mike and the others had pretty much given up. So I knew the only way we were going to survive this is for me to be the one to take initiative and make sure that the remaining crew stayed alive. I got the men up and gave them orders to prepare us for the next few days, We plugged our ears as best we could and communicated with hand signals. We boarded up the portholes below deck, and over the next couple of nights, we were able to finally get some rest. The days after that were quiet. We remained hidden below deck at night, and during the day we went out to watch for boats or planes that could possibly be looking for us. We hadn't heard anything for the past two days and nights, so we began to feel like it was over. We let our guard down. And that's when everything went south. We thought the sirens had lost interest. But we were wrong. That night we relaxed and prepared a hot meal. Growing tired of hand signals and struggling to communicate, we decided to remove the earplugs. It proved to be a huge mistake. It's like they knew immediately. It was a soft sound at first, but it kept growing louder and louder. It was becoming louder than it had ever been before. Mike and the other men immediately became hypnotized by the sounds. I had already replaced the wax over my ears to block it out. I tried shaking the men violently, one after the other, trying to snap them out of the trance. But there were too many of them for me to stop them alone. I tried to keep them from opening the door, blocking their way with my body, but I was outnumbered, and they tossed me aside with little effort. I ran after them, yelling and screaming at the top of my lungs, but nothing seemed to faze them. I finally singled out Mike, and I slapped him hard, trying to jar him back to his senses, but to no avail. The men made it back to the deck and began climbing over the railing, I saw the first man reach the top, but he didn't jump. He didn't have a chance. Something reached over the railing and grabbed him. Digging long bird-like claws into his shoulders, it yanked him over. One of the sirens finally showed its ugly face as it climbed up onto the ship, and as soon as it did, I pulled the hammer that had been hanging from my belt and smashed it over the head. The creature screamed out in pain and anger. It locked its eyes with mine and started to come at me. I raised the hammer back again and hit it in the same spot as before, right on the temple. That's when I noticed its wings. It spread them and they had to be at least 16 feet from tip to tip. I thought that it was about to take flight, but instead it fell over backwards, flopped onto the deck, and then went still, one down, who knows how many more to go. Two other sirens had made it onto the ship and saw me take down their friend. You could tell they were seething with rage by the screeching, growling cries they were making as they headed towards me. The ship started to sway violently, waves crashing into us causing us all to fall over just like the first night Lee and I had an encounter with one of them. The two sirens were soon joined by another. I was reeling with shock from their appearance. I thought we were dealing with some kind of mermaid-type creature, but instead, they looked like birds, very large birds, but with the heads of women. One came for me and the other two went after Mike and the other crew. I frantically looked around, but there was no place to go. I held my hammer back, ready for the attack. The siren then suddenly leaped on top of me and slashed my chest open. Blood went gushing everywhere. I flung the hammer with all of my strength. Hitting the siren right in the face. Stunning it long enough for me to get out from under it. I hadn't even realized that during the battle the singing had stopped and the men were all beginning to fight back. Mike had finally come out of his trance and was fighting off the sirens as well. He had picked up a pipe and was beating one of the creatures as it was crawling towards him. I had blood pouring all down my body from my chest wounds, but I couldn't stop. I had to help him. I ran to where he was and began pounding on the siren's head with the hammer until it finally fell limp. There was blood everywhere. When I looked around, most of the crew were either down or missing, except for me and Mike. There was only one siren left. It was clawing at one of the men, who I remembered only as John. I could feel myself becoming angrier and angrier. I was getting weak, but I had to fight. I got up hammer in hand and charged towards the siren that was now feasting on John. I slammed the hammer into the siren's chest, sending it flying into a wall, where it was impelled by a pole, causing it to hang there. It made a horrifying screeching sound and fought for a few moments before its life faded, and it just hung there. That seemed to be the last one, the waters had begun to calm. As soon as I checked to make sure it was all clear, I ran down to where Mike was. He had gone back to his room and huddled into a corner. I'd never seen him like this. I walked over to him and helped him up. He looked at me horrified. I told him they were all dead, and we needed to find a first aid kit for both of our injuries. We searched all over the ship but couldn't find the kit. I was losing strength fast. I was becoming lightheaded and dizzy. Mike had to help me back to my bed. My body was covered in my own blood and the blood of the sirens. Mike grabbed a spare sheet and wrapped it around my chest trying to stop the bleeding. I was fading in and out of consciousness at the moment. I really thought I was going to die. Mike tied the sheet around me and then said something to me, but I couldn't make out what he was saying before I blacked out. It wasn't until about two hours later that I woke up cold and weaker than before. I stumbled out of bed looking for Mike. He was up on the deck waving his arms and yelling. Help had arrived in the form of another ship. It was still dark, but I could clearly see the lights in the distance. It looked like a cruise ship. At this point, I didn't care what it was. I remembered the flares that we hadn't had the chance to use, but I was too weak to get them. Instead, I sent Mike. That flare flying through the dark night sky was more beautiful to me than fireworks on the 4th of July. Finally, the sun came up. The ship had spotted us and called the Coast Guard. Help had finally arrived. Mike's injuries were tolerable, but my whole body hurt, and I was hallucinating from all the blood loss. The rescue team that came aboard the ship saw the blood all over me and Mike and the damage that had been done to the ship, not to mention there were still the dead bodies from the sirens on the deck. They patched us up and flew us to the nearest medical center. We never heard another word about the sirens after that. I was in an induced coma for the next couple of weeks recovering. When I finally woke up, Mike was sitting next to me. He told me that as soon as we landed at the hospital, they immediately took us to get medical attention and asked him all sorts of questions. Mike told them everything. He said they didn't know how either of us had survived. And it's safe to say that Mike and I have a newfound fear and respect for the ocean but we never wanted to go near it again. And as soon as we got back home, we both resigned from our positions. Neither of us have been back out on the ocean since that incident, and I don't think we'll ever go back. Thank you for listening to Freaky Folklore, the podcast about mankind's horrifying legends and myths. Don't forget to follow Freaky Folklore on Spotify and iTunes. If you can, leave the show an honest review on iTunes to help us grow. Freaky Folklore is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network, the home for listeners who love to feel scared. Go to EerieCast.com to find other terrifying podcasts such as Destination Terror and Redwood Bureau. If you would like to submit an encounter or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to CarmenCarrion at gmail.com. That is C-A-R-M-A-N-C-A-R-R-I-O-N at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook for information on future episodes. Tune in next week as we discuss the Chigamo, an eight-legged spider-like Japanese yokai. Until next time, stay safe out there, because this world is a strange one.